Welcome to episode 137, Planning Maternity Leave in Private Practice, where practical considerations meet law and ethics. Featuring Amanda Landry, licensed mental health counselor. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. Today we're talking about something that is very unique, which is planning for maternity leave. And I am Beth Irias. I'm here today to talk with Amanda Landry. Um, Amanda has, uh, well, right now she's pregnant, so she's pre- preparing for her own maternity leave. But let me tell you a little bit about her. Um, Amanda is a licensed mental health counselor, certified addictions professional, and national certified counselor in South Florida. And she has been doing law and ethics training for years and agreed to come uh, today to talk with us about preparing for maternity leave. Um, and I should also note for just extended medical absence, whether that's through maternity or through some other foreseeable medical issue. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here again. And thanks for that intro. So Amanda, why don't you tell us a little bit more about you other than the fact that you're pregnant? Sure. <laughs> and, and also, I would love to hear too what this particular topic means to you, because I'm sure you've been going through your own process and learning what you're going to do about handling maternity leave. So yeah, I am a licensed mental health counselor in South Florida. Uh, I have a group practice called Caring Therapists of Broward and Palm Beach. So we have two locations, sort of an hour away from each other, but in very similar areas. And uh, during this pandemic, it's been very busy. And so that's been, uh, as we talk about this topic of going on lead, has been uh, one, a blessing because as you grow, sort of you have different kind of support. But as you grow, um, there's also other challenges when you are thinking about going on any leave. And then I'm also a, a private practice consultant in the admin of uh, my private practice collective. It's a Facebook group with, we have over 16,000 members as of now. And it's just a really great community where we connect about all things private practice. Wonderful. Uh, well, thank you for joining us today. So, This topic of maternity leave, um, for our listeners that know this, I have two uh, biological children. And so I I have gone through maternity leave two times myself. And so I'll be speaking a little bit in this conversation about my experience and my planning. Um, But Amanda, why don't you let us in to what it's been like for you now in the end stages of your pregnancy to be considering going on maternity leave? You know, uh, when I was preparing this and thinking about this, and one thing that I wrote is like, they definitely don't talk to us about this in grad school. That was like the thing that really stood out. There's a lot of things they don't talk to us about, but this was definitely not one of them. And so, you know, what I started to see is that I needed to plan for my own maternity leave, and I'm just naturally a planner, right? Like that's that's who I am, and that's what I help people do is plan out their private practices. And I realized like I needed a really solid plan, like across the board, not just with my clients, but with my business, with the finances. And I realized that a lot of other people were looking for guidance too. I would see it then maybe I just, you know, when somebody's like, oh, there's this, you know, red Tesla. And then all of a sudden you see red Teslas everywhere. I think it's kind of the same 
ideas like I started to see so many people asking about maternity leave and and leave in general, like you said, even like COVID leave, a lot of people have left uh, for periods of time, even if it's two weeks, two weeks can feel like a really long time in a private practice to leave, especially if you've never left for that period of time. Um, And then I've seen other people have to, you know, leave for four to six weeks for various medical issues. And I started to, to notice a lot of people were asking, what do I do? What do I do? And that's where this topic really came from. You know, as you're talking about this, there are all these other layers that are occurring to me. And so we're talking about maternity leave. But when I go backwards in the timeline, even, I remember for myself, that consideration of when you even tell your clients that you're pregnant. Can you speak to that? I mean, I I know I've seen that on social media of like, when do we have this conversation? How do we have this conversation? And of course, um, everybody's experience of their pregnancy, whether it's planned, whether it's unplanned, whether it's single, whether it's multiple, like high high risk, there are all these considerations that make every pregnancy and experience different. Um, but I'm curious, like, what have you seen in terms of decision making, even about telling clients that you are expecting? So what's really interesting is that through my entire pregnancy, I've been home doing only telehealth. And I really consider that to be a blessing in disguise because for me, I was very sick in my first 20 weeks of my pregnancy. And if I had been at the office, for sure the other clinicians would have known because they knew we were trying. It wasn't a secret for the other clinicians, let's say in the office that knew we were trying. And I think for some of my clients that had been with me for a long time, I think maybe they're very intuitive, you know, and, and, and they knew I had gotten married. Some of them watched me get married and have different life changes happen. So I, I, I don't think it took anybody by surprise, but I think if I would have come to session like five weeks in and been, and immediately leaving session and going to the bathroom and people, you know, um, hearing you throw up, which is just a part of it, is that people would have known much earlier. Whereas because I was home, I was able to really contain a lot of those symptoms for about 20 weeks. So I waited uh, just about about 20 weeks to really announce it in general. I mean, we told our family and friends, and um, but I waited a little bit. Most people say around three months is a general uh, you know, good idea to start, to, yeah, you know, is the beginning part of when you can start to tell people. But I think for me, that four, like really four months solid, I started to feel a little, um, I wasn't really feeling better then. Um, but I was starting to kind of know that I needed to start planning, <laughs> planning for this and maybe um, not, uh, that you start to show and, and these different kinds of things. Not that, again, you can hide it. I know people who are not comfortable with telling till they're six months pregnant or longer. But I started around about three and a half to four months. It was funny. I had people ask me like straight out, are you pregnant or you seem sick during a session or some, you know, something like that. And I was like, well, by the way, this was the week I was going to tell everybody that I was pregnant. So, um, uh, nobody, nobody ever said, Hey, you look green today. So that (laughs) made me feel pretty good. But, um, that it's, it's, it's a, an interesting thing to have to do because, we're taught so much not to self-disclose, right? Mm-hmm. And there are just life things that happen. I think when you're of a certain age that you can't, um, you can't keep. I remember when I got engaged. I will always think about this. 
my female clients were like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. And they were so excited. And my male clients, like, I think like one noticed and then the rest didn't say anything. So that was kind of interesting because then one day I showed up with an engagement ring and, and it was the same thing. I had to kind of navigate what I wanted to tell and what I, what I wasn't comfortable telling. Mm-hmm. So I would say that before you tell your, your clients, you have to decide what you're comfortable with telling them because they're going to ask questions, right? It's just kind of natural. I think a lot of people, it's interesting because I got married and then got pregnant and uh, not not that close, but my experience had been so different. People were really excited I was getting married, but people are really, really excited that I'm pregnant, right? Like that, it's, it's just been a different experience and People tend to have more questions. They have questions um, longer than, you know, when they get married. It's like, okay, I'm going to get married. They knew roughly when I was getting married and there weren't really too many other mm-hmm. questions besides that. But when you're pregnant, they want to know how far along are you and yeah. is it a boy or a girl and uh, when are you going on maternity leave and what is your due date and there's just more sentiment, I guess, that goes along with it. And so... I would say, you know, from that ethical standpoint, figure out what you're you're comfortable with sharing and what you're not comfortable with sharing. And especially if you have any like hiccups along the way, or if you have any, you know, medical conditions or, you know, just anything kind of happens, like how you will communicate that. And if, because there are things to consider because if you have any kind of high risk pregnancy, you may have to go to the doctor more frequently. So that means you might have to, you know, reduce your hours. You may go into labor earlier. Um, and so there are just things that you kind of have to prepare for and not that you necessarily have to tell your, your clients, okay, I'm high risk. Therefore, you know, I have more doctor's appointments, but you have to prepare them. I think that your hours will be reduced, um, that you, you might have a tentative date when you're terminating, but that might not be the exact date. And so there's ways to give information without giving too much information. I think you bring up an important point, which is just the sentimentality about pregnancy and and also that idea for practitioners who are listening, who are either pregnant or considering it in the future, thinking about this for themselves. It is really um, personal because obviously if we're pregnant, it means we had sex. At least most of the time, that's generally what sure. that means. Not always, but that's generally what that means. Um, and that in and of itself is an interesting thing to have floating around the world. And I know that felt immensely personal to me. Not not just, oh my goodness, my therapist had sex, but this idea of like, I have another human in my belly. And so when we're sitting here in session, there are two of me, not just one. Um, and that my clients had lots of feelings about that, about what pregnancy meant to them, about their experience of, you know, their their mother being pregnant or their wife being pregnant or their partner or whoever it was. And that not only was it the emotionality I was feeling, but then it was what it brought up for them. And so I'm glad you brought up that point because I think that was the part for me that was kind of a surprise was how many feelings um, my clients had about my pregnancy and how it shifted the way that they interacted with me. I noticed that like my, some of my clients seemed to be more caretaking, uh, which you may have experienced as well. Yeah, and you're nodding. I'm nodding my head, yes. And then I tried to be very careful around that because 
Um, not that I, I would ever discourage that in somebody, but I had to, I wanted to make sure that the sessions remained focused on the clients and not the caretaking. And we could use that definitely in therapy, but it, that's a very interesting point. Absolutely. And, and I know too, for me and, and Amanda, I know you were trying as well. For many people, when we're uh, in group practices and private practices in this field, considering pregnancy, we're thinking um, perhaps long term about like, well, when is this going to happen? Is it five years from now, 10 years from now? What if there are um, stops and starts? What if it what if we don't get pregnant when we anticipate we will whatever it is. And I think that that adds some anxiety into this topic. Like that's one of the things I see is like, when do we tell people? When do I tell my clients? Um, how do we talk about it? What about you know, if I don't know when I'm going to leave? So as we continue, I think what I what I want to establish for our listeners, if you feel uneasy about this, it's okay. <laughs> I think I think there are many people before you that have felt uneasy about these conversations. Um, and also appreciating that there are conversations too that therapists are having that are also um, parents welcoming children into their lives, whether adopted or biological, that are not actually carrying the children. So also understanding that, you know, my husband is a therapist. And so he had a conversation with his clients about whether or not he was expecting, you know, he was, quote, unquote, expecting, like our family was expecting, but a client couldn't look at him and see it. Um, but so wanting to acknowledge that, um, gosh, there's so much that we can say here. So Amanda, why don't we start now by talking about kind of the ethical considerations about maternity leave? Because I think for some of us, it can feel like we're abandoning our patients. Is that accurate? What is that feeling? What is fact? Like, how do we sort through that? Yeah, I think that is the concern that most people have. And what I did was I started to do monthly updates for my clients. And it wasn't about the pregnancy, but it was really about where I was at in terms of providing clinical care. And so I, you know, there were things, if my something shifted, it was going to shift in my schedule for the month, I would, you know, provide an update in an email to everybody. I gave them tentative dates. I offered a, like sort of like initial um, referrals because I have a group practice. It was a little, I wouldn't say easier. It was a little different in the sense that it would be pretty easy to pair people off you know, in my group practice, but not everybody was a fit in my group practice. But I was able to say, hey, listen, if something happens, call our, you know, client care coordinator, she will, you know, set you up with somebody if, you know, if an emergency happens or something like that. So that was good. That was good. But if you're a solo practitioner, and you don't have that structure of a, of a group practice, that's okay. You just have to think about if there were an emergency, if you were going to be out of the, you know, uh, out of commission, even for a week or two, um, you know, who would make those calls for you? And do they have, you know, uh, do they have the appropriate trainings or, the, you know, do you have a BAA with them? You know, uh, do you have some kind of signed document, some kind of signed contract? What I see most of the time people do in a solo practice is that they have another uh, solo practitioner that they are, uh, you know, colleagues with and that they will ask them to cover their practice either whenever they're on leave, uh, setting, uh, 
phone calls, setting emails, however they can communicate in case of an emergency or just in case of their whatever the leave looks like. But you want to make sure, again, that you're doing that from an ethical standpoint that that other person, you know, whatever kind of contract you have drafted with them, letting them, you know, making sure you have all of, you know, like a BAA in place. And then also letting your clients know, like, you know, this particular person is going to be the one that is going, if there's an emergency, will be the one that calls you and will let you know, um, you know, what the next steps are. Or while I'm on leave, if something comes up, please contact this person. They will be happy to provide you with referrals. But I was very clear once it got closer to my time of leaving that I provided with specific referrals. So whether it was, I know they say to, you know, usually provide three referrals, but if somebody was going to link up with another clinician in my office and we put them on their schedule, we did that. If I didn't, if I wanted to provide the the client maybe some more information or there was just like, hey, I think these three people would be good, but I know you like to, you know, have a lot of autonomy around your decision making, whatever it looked like. I provided that to my clients via email and then I put it in their files and documented all of it. So then that way, no client was abandoned. Now, if I, and if I didn't hear from somebody, then I did close case forms and, you know, made sure that everybody had all of the information that I was going on maternity leave. And again, like I said, I did monthly updates and that seemed to be really helpful and because a lot, my specialty is anxiety. I think I needed to give a lot of preparation and a lot of notice to, you know, majority of my clients because that helps them plan and helps them prepare. And then they felt like they knew what was going on. And then if anything happened, that they would have support by having the phone number to our client care coordinator. Most of them knew her anyways, but knowing they could call or email and then having a list of therapists or an appointment. Um, You mentioned BAA. For our listeners who don't know what that is, that's a business associate agreement. Amanda, can you talk a little bit more about what that means and what that would uh, signify if you were to have that in place when you were pregnant or considering pregnancy or, or just in general for an emergency contact for your clients? So a business associate agreement is basically a contract that, um, you have somebody else sign, usually a business or another person sign if they're doing business that allows for information that is um, protected by HIPAA to be um, given to that person. And so, uh, for instance, um, trying to think, we have BAAs like with our fax company, for instance, because while they're, what they do is HIPAA compliant, you still need this document saying that they're going to follow all of the, you know, compliance that needs to happen. And so we also, whenever we hire virtual assistants, we also have them sign a contract, a BAA, and then have them do uh, some kind of like online HIPAA training or in-person HIPAA training. Everything's online lately. And so if you are using another practitioner, you can always ask them like, you know, um, what safeguards they have in terms of HIPAA to ensure that they, you know, they're not going to text your clients from like a random phone number or something, or if they're, their email, um, they have an encrypted email or, or some kind of HIPAA compliant email. 
And so you want to make sure that you are following all the rules that you're supposed to follow. And having a BAA with somebody is, is one of those things. And you can, you, there are pretty good sample BAAs, uh, online. There, HIPAA Journal, I think, has a good one. And I'm trying to think where else I've gotten them from or at least seen, but there are some platforms out there that have pretty like like standard BAAs um, that you can utilize for your business and just customize it. Wonderful. So for our listeners, again, BAA is business associate agreement. And while we default to the assumption that we're HIPAA covered entities, even for people who aren't HIPAA covered entities, still best practice to have that BAA. In California, we're required to have what's called a professional will. And so part of that may even be an existing BAA saying that this person would basically take control of our charts, contact our clients in the case of an emergency. Um, But so I'm glad, Amanda, that you brought up that point because I think it's easy to overlook. Um, And and the other part of it is I think this is another thing that I see in in, uh, talking with pregnant practitioners of, I think, our expectation of like, oh, no, I'll be able to respond to client texts or to emails or to calls. And um, that when you're in the hospital, if you don't, you know, goodness knows your birth story is always very unique. It often doesn't go as we planned. And also the adjustment to having a, a new human in your home or humans um, may really change your expectation. So having that in place, even if you don't intend to go on an extended leave, I think is a really good idea. Yeah, I think that we depending on <laughs> uh, where your anxiety lies, like you're either like, it's going to be fine, it's going to be fine. Or you're like, I have to prepare for, you know, all possible circumstances. So I, I think it's like a situation where yes, of course, you want to hope for the best. But you, you also have to plan as well, and make sure that you do have all of these um, contingency plans in place. Because again, With any kind of medical, you think you're going to be out for two days and then it's two weeks. And you, I think about people who went to the hospital with COVID, for instance, you thought, you know, um, maybe, maybe you didn't have any access to a computer during that time or, or very limited access to email. And that can feel, I I am imagining that can feel very overwhelming. Absolutely. Again, with group practices, when you have support, you have you might have a client care coordinator, office manager, a biller, you have some kind of support usually when you have a group practice. But I remember even when I was a solo practitioner, I, I can't say I really planned for a lot of things. Like, I mean, I had some people that I trusted and that I, if there was an emergency that could handle things, but I think really um, having all of this in place, whether you're pregnant or not, or whether you're anticipating any kind of medical leave, I think is really important. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad that we touched upon that point. And I also appreciate your guidance about routinely checking in with your clients and letting them know, kind of, here's how things are going and here's what I anticipate. Um, there are there are lots of different considerations. I mean, we've talked a little bit about making space for clients and in their processing about your pregnancy. I think that's one of the things that I wasn't necessarily anticipating. Um, and then there it was. And it's like, oh, we need to talk about this too. And so it changes. I think it changes the nature of the work um, invariably. Are there any specific ethical guidelines that say you need to give your clients this much notice? Um, or being gone for six months, let's say you decide to take six months off, is that inherently unethical? Can you speak to that? So in my initial research, no, 
I didn't find anything that said, you know, it's unethical to take three months off or six months off. I think that all of our ethics boards really probably understand that emergencies come up, uh, medical issues come up, maternity leaves come up. I think the biggest issue that they have concern about is client abandonment. That's just, you know, um, and making sure that we don't abandon our clients. And I think that I'm imagining in some cases, they're not that it's ever, ever, ever ethical, but that, I mean, if somebody has some kind of um, medical emergency, they just like could not foresee. And for whatever reason, they didn't have a, a records keeper in place, or they didn't have somebody who could, you know, I think of practices that have paper records, right? Like, for, for me, it would be easy it's like hand over our electronic health record to somebody and they could just make those calls. But if you have paper charts, you maybe don't keep a an electronic planner that might be very difficult for somebody to step in and know when your appointments are and how to contact people. And so again, I mean, I'm a big fan of electronic health records for those reasons. Just I find it much easier to run things when everything is electronic. But no, I didn't find anything that said you can't take a a three month or six month maternity leave or one year and never come back to the profession. I don't think that, you know, our ethics boards, any of them, because they, they vary depending on your license can can say that, but the primary concern is not abandoning clients. I think what you just said is really important to hear because I've certainly heard from people, oh, my supervisor says I can't go on a long vacation because X, Y, Z, or it's unethical. And and I want to just emphasize that point. Like it's, it's not that it's inherently unethical to take time off. It's when we don't have the supports in place for those clients in our absence, regardless of whether that's an extended vacation or that's due to maternity leave or a medical emergency. And so for our listeners that are are tuning into this, if, if you want to, as Amanda said, just take a lot of time off, it's okay to do that as long as your clients know that that's an eventuality and that they have appropriate referrals. And Amanda also mentioned kind of the gold standard of providing at least three referrals. Um, so when when providing those referrals, it sounds like Amanda, you were doing that in writing and then also like in person with clients, um, and then making sure to document that if if you have an electronic health record in the electronic health record and or putting those referrals in the chart. Um, what are other expectations that you've been setting for clients about your availability during your maternity leave? So for me, I have been really letting them know, like, I'm not available. I won't be available for emergency sessions. I won't be available um, to answer phone calls or those kinds of things. Um, I did let people know if they wanted to give me like a status email, you know, one status email or two, not, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't specify one, but I, I certainly didn't make it seem like you could email me every week that maybe I would be checking my email at some kind of periodic, you know, periodic uh, interval, and that I would, you know, respond in some sort of, uh, maybe within a week. I, I think that was the, so if you send me an email, I, I should respond within a week, but I normally I respond within 24 hours or fairly quickly. And so I, for me, my leave is really going to be a leave that I am taking. And Again, that's why I provided referrals. Some people decided not to take those referrals, decided to terminate therapy, you know, for the time being. Um, 
and I've left it kind of open in terms of, I've, I've given like a tentative return date, but that's been really tentative because I think a lot of things can just come up in timing. And, and then I let them know that I would, I would send an email out sometime about a month before I plan to return with an update as to my hours, insurances, you know, the, the various things that are going to go into like the schedule and those kinds of things go into, you know, when I return from maternity leave. But for me, it was really important not to place a lot of stress on myself, because I know that it's very easy to slide right back into work, answering emails, and being present for people, even if you're not doing therapy sessions and even not even just present for clients, but I've been pretty clear. I've, I've emailed a lot of our referral sources and uh, people that I'm connected with that I'm going on maternity leave and that I won't be available in my Facebook group. I actually posted yesterday that I'm going on maternity leave and that doesn't mean I, I probably won't. I will, I will peek in and see what's going on and do a few things. Sure. But I really wanted to give myself some space so that way I wouldn't feel overwhelmed with what I'm imagining and from what everybody's told me and I've read, it's going to be an overwhelming situation. <laughs> <laughs> um, I appreciate your candidness about that. And another point that you brought up before we started recording, um, the emotionality of terminating or putting a pause um, in your care with clients and what you would comment is like, you know, it's one thing to to end with one particular client or a couple, but then the idea of an entire caseload. How did you handle that transition of, you know, that that week, whenever that week is suddenly arrives in your calendar? How did you handle the emotionality? I know, I know, for me, it was a very emotional experience to to say to my clients, you know, this is when I'm hoping to come back here, all these referrals, like, and I'm otherwise going offline. <laughs> yeah, it's a really, uh, it was a, a really interesting process. I'm, I'm in the process now. I don't know that I was quite anticipating how emotional it was going to be for me as well. Because when you're a therapist, so much of your identity, or for at least for me, is tied up in that. I'm, I'm, I, 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 my family members and people who know me sort of laugh because when something comes up, I automatically, it's not that I put my, my therapist hat on, but I start asking questions because I, I want to gather information and they're like, stop asking me questions. But that's just the way my brain works because that's how I work as a therapist. I gather information, I take all the information and then we digest it, right? And so being a therapist is so, it's so a part of my identity and then to be terminating and um, also feeling what your clients are feeling, that sense of loss and that sense of change. It's not even, it's not even loss per se. It's, it's more like change. It's because I'm used to clients coming and going and, you know, you have your caseload for a period of time, depending the kind of work you do, maybe you do more short-term work. And so you're used to terminating with clients on a regular basis. For me, I think a little part of it is not just that I'm terminating, but when I, when I'm terminating, I'm terminating and I don't know exactly what it's going to look like on the other side. And that's okay. That's certainly okay. But it, it's different when, than when you terminate with somebody who's just, who's completed therapy or for whatever reason they, you know, they, they, they're terminating. And so I think this week is a week that I definitely, uh, will, will need to do a lot of self care. What's interesting when you're pregnant is that um, 
your energy levels are very low though. So I think had my, had I had to terminate with 25 clients and not being nine months pregnant would have been very different emotionally. Um, but, but it, it, it definitely, um, opened up my eyes to really empathize with my clients and how they feel. I think that's a really important point is the mutual experiencing of that transition. Um, the, well, there are lots of considerations that are coming up, coming up for me, but one of them that you and I have talked about a bit is like the, the practical side of this. So, you know, we, we provide appropriate referrals. We come up with a BAA with a trusted colleague and we do all of these things, but then there's like the practical side of like, how do you actually do this? Um, how do you terminate with some clients, put a pause with others do you come back to a practice where there's nobody there? And I'm just going to share my experience. So I'm a private practitioner north of Los Angeles. And, um, and when I left for my second, for the birth of my second child, I told my clients that I was going to be off for at least three months. I said a minimum of three months and I was going to be completely unavailable during that time. And I provided everybody with referrals and I, I talked through with them. I gave them the option of, do you want to, do you want to wait? Do you want to see somebody else? How, you know, how do you want this to go? And I'm supportive of that. And what was really interesting for me, I remember feeling really anxious. And I think many of our listeners are probably holding that same anxiety of like, well, will I still have a practice or am I having a baby and then going to have zero income and coming back and, and my job has started over. And this is a very real thing that can happen. Um, speaking for myself, I was actually surprised by the number of clients that maybe had followed up with a referral that I had provided and had seen somebody a couple of times, but otherwise the majority of my caseload, which were, which are pretty low acuity, I'm outpatient therapist. Um, but the majority of my caseload came back. Um, and they were ready and willing. Some of them started journaling. And so they were like, okay, let me tell you everything that happened. And they're reading their journal and, and, you know, kind of doing what I call the information dump. But let's talk about that piece. Like, how do you actually plan this out financially? How do you take in considerations about your health insurance, about disability? Um, Amanda and I can obviously both speak to our personal experience and also, of course, to Amanda's, um, additional experience and learning how this happens. So please jump into that and pick up wherever you think is important. So again, it's I always preface this is like, you probably the first person you want to talk to is your accountant, because we can give you all kinds of information and feedback about this, but they're ultimately going to be the ones that will help guide you in this process. And it depends on the structure of your business. Like I was reading the other day, somebody has um, an S corp and during their maternity leave, and it wasn't a group practice, it was a solo practice. During their maternity leave, they were not going to be drawing an income because they weren't working in their in their practice, but they would be still drawing distributions, which would save them on taxes, which would save them, you know, um, some, some, uh, you know, some money and some uh, energy. And I, I was like, that's very interesting. So it really is going to depend on the structure of your business. What I recommend is that you start saving whenever you think you want to start planning for a family, because there are 
at least in the United States, uh, little to no programs or anything available for people who want to go on any like maternity, paternity leave, even FMLA. FMLA is great uh, when you work at a job, but that only guarantees your job for a period of time. That doesn't guarantee you any finances. And so you have to basically prepare This is where talking to your accountant and maybe talking to like an insurance broker would be helpful because you want to, if you are thinking about getting pregnant, you may want to look into short-term disability, uh, something like Aflac. That's the most common one that I have seen. And But there are rules around when you can sign up for Aflac. A lot of people want to sign up when they're already pregnant and that I, I'm pretty sure that's a no-go. Um, and it's, yeah. I think with Aflac, it's two years um, from when you start the policy to when you become pregnant or need to lo- use the leave. But I remember looking it into, into it myself for the same reason. Um, so knowing that with the short-term disability policies, if it's one of those private companies, their exclusion list is pregnancy. And there's a very specific timeline that you have to have signed up for insurance with them and then paid it for a certain amount of time before they'll pay out for maternity leave. I kind of had had heard through the grapevine that that was the case, so that wasn't something that I even um, really considered and looked into. But if you are, again, a group practice that has employees, like I know in California you have to have employees, you may offer short-term disability, and that might be a great thing because it's usually short... The good thing about short-term disability is not very um, cost-prohibitive to offer it to yourself and to your employees, and so... That may be something that if you are ever thinking about getting pregnant, even if it's two to five years in the future, you want to sign up for your short-term disability as as early as possible if you want to utilize those benefits. And some people also talk about utilizing. I think you can all like you may be able to also get if you are you know partnered. Um, uh, have your, you know, get it through your partner, uh, health insurance, you can either get it through your partner, the, ex- the exchange, or even through somebody uh, privately. But if you don't have health insurance, it's the same thing. There are a lot of different stipulations around pregnancy. And so you always want to check your, your insurance policy before you make any, you know, not before you make moves about getting pregnant. Sometimes that doesn't necessarily work that way, but knowing what your insurance coverage is, what it's going to be for the current year, the next year, and how all of that is going to impact you and if you will be able to sustain that. So, you know, when you're planning for maternity leave, you're not just planning for your own income, you're also having to plan for your business income. And so if you pay your health insurance through your business, if your phone gets paid for through your business, will you be paying for um, things like rent uh, during your maternity leave? And so a, a lot of the times it's it's not just, okay, I need to save up X amount of dollars, I'm going on maternity leave, and that'll cover my salary. You're going to have to cover expenses, salaries, taxes, health insurance during that time. So that's why I said like you want to give yourself definitely enough time to plan for that. The hard part about planning for it while you are pregnant, what I found and what I find with a lot of people is um, there are different (laughs) seasons for me in private practice. There are times when I worked more and there were times that I worked less. I can honestly say I worked less while I was pregnant. Just again, sort of naturally, your, your stamina level may may or may not be there. And so my process has been I have dwindled down 
And so my income has gone down during my pregnancy. So I, you know, um, for some people, you might not be able to save during that time because your income, you know, has gone down. So it's really important to start saving sort of as soon as possible, as soon as you either are thinking about trying or even, get, you know, getting pregnant. I know some people, if they feel great in their first trimester, which I'm very happy to see people who feel great in their first and second trimester. That's a good six months. Like you can think of if you wanted to take on additional clients during that time and use that, you know, if you took on three additional clients a week and put that money towards leave or what, you know, whatever kind of calculation you did that. I've also seen people do that, but I think it's really important to determine when you're going to stop taking people. I think it's very easy to say, I see a lot of people will take people up until six weeks before their, their due date. Again, people that I give a lot of credit to because I, I stopped taking any new people very pretty early on, um, in my, my pregnancy purposefully because the kind of work I do tends to be a little bit more long term and deeper work. And what I find is that somebody will call let's say, and want to book with me and say, I have anxiety. And then we sort of, we, we get into the work. And while they might still be anxious, there there might be some underlying things that's going to take, you know, long-term care. And I just decided with the kind of population that I work with, because I do EMDR, because I work with clients with PTSD, because I, I, I work with a lot of clients with uh, bipolar disorder, uh, major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder. These were not things that generally just like shore up and, and 12 sessions of CBT, right? Like there, it takes a, a little bit more care. Some people need to be stabilized. And so I just decided for me ethically to go back to that, that I wasn't going to take on any more, uh, any additional clients. But I think it, again, depends on the kind of work that you do and what your own bandwidth during that time is. You bring up an, imp an important point there too. I know I'm, so I'm one of those practitioners that will offer like a free 15 or 20 minute phone call to see about goodness of fit. And that there was that, I don't remember what the time was for me. Um, with my first, I, I was hiding my pregnancy for a while with my second, I, I popped, so to speak. And so <laughs> I was, it was much more obvious that I was pregnant the second time around. And I remember having to basically have that conversation with myself and with my partner earlier on about when is that day going to be? And also the impact on clients. It's like, I need to be fully transparent with you that if you sign on and I'm doing therapy with your child, I'm only going to be here for two more months or for three more months and also empowering the client to have that information so that they can make an informed decision. And so it was, it was unusual for me to be on the phone with somebody new when I'm in that kind of gray area and say, and by the way, I'm, you know, I, I know you don't know me, but you can't see me right now and I have a baby in my belly <laughs> so that they can make an informed decision. So I, I'm glad you brought up that point because I think that's another thing that it's easy for us to forget. Like, when are we going to say this is the deadline for me to take new clients and then also deciding around what factors, you know, how acute the pathology is or how frequent the therapy is, those kind of considerations. Yeah. And having a group practice has been helpful with that because for me, the group practice sustains the expenses. So that wasn't something I necessarily had to plan for, though uh, anybody that knows me knows that that is also planned for and that uh, contingency plans are, are in place. But 
you know, again, sort of like a blessing in disguise with the pandemic is that we've been very busy. And so that has been helpful in this sense, like I've been able to hire and then now have multiple clinicians for my my clients to see. Um, I understand that might not be the case for everybody. So for me, hiring a clinical director was really uh, paramount to planning for my maternity leave. I think having a group practice, having a clinical director in place is really important because my productivity levels went down and I realized I needed some support in helping run the group practice. And this is somebody who not only helped during my maternity leave transition, but will help, or my pregnancy transition, but will help during the maternity leave transition. She'll really be the person, you know, taking over doing clinical supervision, running any clinical issues that come up and just, you know, doing a lot of the the day-to-day things that I do sort of like, you know, inadvertently, I think that was one thing I realized that I do a lot of things that might not be written down on paper anywhere that I just sort of like do automatically. And I had to make a list of those things and decide who was going to do those things while I was gone. So even if you're at a solo practice, who's going to answer your email? Are you just going, a lot of people will just put a blanket email, like I'm on maternity leave, you know, um, he, you know, here, here's the link to you know, psychology today or therapy den or something if you're looking for, for a clinic, you know, a clinician or a, a therapist. And so having support at whatever level you're at, I think is really important because like we've said, you don't always know what your leave is going to look like. You don't always know how much time you're going to have. A lot of people think when you own a business, sometimes I think a lot of people tr- plan for only six weeks because they want to get back to their business. But some people want to plan for three or four months. I'm, pl- I'm taking four months for my leave. And that was that was planned and sort of purposeful. And uh, making sure that you have coverage for yourself. So you again, so you're not overwhelmed. I think the overwhelm, I know, at least for me, that was just part of the experience. And as you touched upon earlier, those first few months, I know I had really bad morning sickness. Um, and my couch not only became some place that my clients would sit on, but someplace that I would curl up. And I, I learned that I needed to schedule my clients in certain times in different ways with extended breaks in between because my body was an incubator <laughs> and that needed to be a priority. Um, one of the other points that I want to share with our listeners So for me, with my first child, I was a sole practitioner and wasn't incorporated with my second, I was incorporated. And part of the reasoning for that was that by incorporating in California, it gave me the ability to be an employee of the corporation so that I could use disability benefits. Of course, every state is different. But um, for me, that was the right choice to make um, and was how I was able to have actual quote unquote maternity leave through the state of California that I had paid into um, as withholding from my paychecks. So I want to encourage our listeners to find information about that in your state and see if that's an option to you or what that would take. So for, for me, I had to be incorporated in order for me to really be eligible. Or like at least in California, there's the option to buy into an elective uh uh, disability policy. Um, but again, as Amanda had mentioned, there were limitations. And so I think you had to be part of that for a couple of years before that would really kick in and provide any benefits. Um, so I, I encourage 
for pregnant listeners or people who are considering pregnancy, I encourage you to talk to other people that have been through these experiences. I, I know Amanda and I have both seen these things pop up on social media and these kind of conversations, which is why we're talking about this today. Um, but to ask other people around you, how did you manage it? How much time did you take off? Um, and I know, just as Amanda said, like we, we can have the best of intentions and in what we're planning and what we might anticipate, but really needing to be very gentle with ourselves and very flexible and also set our clients with that same expectation because there is nothing in the world like having a newborn. Um, and the other thing as well, I had, uh, I needed to have two medically necessary C-sections. So I was also healing from major surgery. Um, so it wasn't also just having a newborn. It was also that consideration and other medical complications. Um, so what else, Amanda, what else do we need to talk about kind of in these considerations for maternity leave for family planning? You've talked a bit about the organizational part. Yeah, I think the other part is, um, you know, one thing that really stood out to me kind of like to circle back what we were talking about initially is in letting our clients know one of the things that really was different for me was how present my needs became in my sessions in the simple fact like, um, there were weeks when I was cramping pretty badly and I was having Braxton Hicks and I needed to increase my water intake. And normally if I didn't grab a bottle of water for a session, it was no big deal. I would just do the session. But now there were times when I would get to session, I would, you know, be on telehealth. My client would come and I would be like, oh, I have to go grab a, a bottle of water, right? It wasn't like... Like before it was like, no big deal. I'll just drink water afterwards and I'll, I'll chug a bunch. And it was, it was fine. You know, I just forgot to grab my bottle of water, but now there was no forgetting. Right. And even things like there were, there are, because of my particular circumstances, very specific times I had to eat snacks. And as much as I would have loved to like give myself a 15 minute break between, you know, particular clients, it, it, it didn't always work that way because it would depend upon when I would eat lunch and sometimes I would eat lunch at 12 and sometimes it'd be 1230 and then it would have to be X amount of time afterwards. And so I would have to let my clients know, like, I have to eat this snack in session and they were all great with it. Like they were all really supportive, but that also informs my decision around taking new clients because older clients, they, um, they know you a little bit more, you know, like again, not maybe personally, but professionally, they know how you normally are. They know what you normally do. And they know like, you know, maybe, or maybe I'm not, I'm not one who's like super against eating in session because I think sometimes it just happens. And sometimes my clients are like, yes, I will also eat almonds with you. I'm very happy to do that. Um, especially like when we were, when we were back in office and I think other, like I've seen uh, clients have to eat. I, I just, I think sometimes, um, the things that we are taught so strictly, don't eat, don't self-disclose, don't, um, I don't know, you know, clothing. Is, Clothing, clothing was one that came up yes. <laughs> by the end of my second pregnancy. I mean, I pretty much lived in this really stretched out, worn out pair of maternity leggings and like a couple of big sweaters. Um, and so that was different for me to not be wearing um, as professional of attire as I was used to or that, man, was I running hot. And so I had a fan right on me all the time. But so I, I'm glad you brought up that point because I think the framework 
almost has to totally change about what it means to be pregnant in session and how it changes how we show up. I'm, I'm really glad you brought up that point. Um, I know for me, I definitely was trained like really clear boundaries. You start the session on time, you end the session on time, you don't take breaks, make sure you go to the bathroom before and after, you know, like all of these things. But when you're pregnant, a lot of that goes out the door. And I appreciate that you brought up that point of just grace and um i think also like the humor in pregnancy like it's just an absurd condition and so like i know i've seen on social media like conversations about the the silly awkward and weird things that happen to women's bodies that can happen in session <laughs> because you're pregnant <laughs> yeah unfortunately i've always trained my bladder like between every you know go between every session and so i do um but they're especially sort of like later in your pregnancy you sometimes have to break in the th the 30 minute mark, you know, and especially if you're working on not having Braxton Hicks or you're drinking a lot of water. And so it's, it's like, it's like this, <laughs> this Tetris game of like, uh, you have to drink a lot of water to not have Braxton Hicks, but then you have to go to the bathroom, but then you have to work. And then, you know, it, it becomes where you need flexibility for yourself and from your clients. And I just found it to be easier to have that flexibility when I had it an established caseload instead of trying to have an intake. And again, there were times when I didn't feel well enough to do sessions that I had to cancel sessions last minute. And that was also like a really tough thing because, you know, we cancel for late or we, we charge for late cancellation. So you have to be very clear again on how you may shift your late cancellation policy because it's, I don't want to use necessarily use the word fair, but it's not fair for me to say, hey, I'm sick. I have to cancel your session. It's two. I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm like literally cannot make it to your four o'clock session. But then would you, if they were in, in a similar situation, would you charge them if they late canceled? A lot of people will be flexible with their late cancellations around um, illness. Like I, I do get that. But there were times when I just, it wouldn't even be illness, it would be fatigue. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up that point in the consideration about that. And one of the other things, and this was pre-COVID. So my pregnancy was pre-COVID. My baby was born pre-COVID. But as soon as I knew I was pregnant, I told my clients, you know, like I have, what I said was there are people in this office. And so I, I have uh, one office in a suite. I said, there are people in this office who have compromised immune systems. Please do not come in if you're sick. We can go online. You won't incur a cancellation fee. And then once my clients knew that I was pregnant, um, I really held that boundary. And it was like, if, if it meant that I was going to lose that hour of income and a client canceled last minute, I would much rather have them cancel than, and for me to lose that income than be laid up for two weeks sick and pregnant because they have a cold bug and I got it. And obviously during the pandemic, that's an entirely different animal um, and even more dangerous and important during that time. But I, I think, Amanda, you're hitting on lots of little points that we maybe don't anticipate when we're in it or when we're leading up to it, but then these things just happen. And it's like, oh my, you know, I remember the first time a teenager came in with sniffles and it was like, oh no, oh no, <laughs> I don't know why are you sitting here? Like, I need to reiterate, if you're sick, don't come in. <laughs> yeah, those are, those are interesting things that I haven't had to consider because I have been working from home. So that's, again, sort of like that blessing disguise. But I think you bring up, you like you said, a, it's a, a good point. Like, how are your policies going to shift? And are you going to put those policies in writing? And are they a big enough policy shift that you would want to, um, you know, create new 
new intake forms or, you know, consent forms. What I did was just documented in the chart, like canceled, you know, client session, no fee charged. Well, I wouldn't charge if I canceled, but like I, I would, you know, say like a clinician provided X amount of notice, um, you know, no, no, you know, uh, client's next cancellation is free or something, you know, I, I would uh, negotiate or work something out. Like I wouldn't, I, I became more flexible. And that's mm-hmm. just if somebody had to cancel for something, then I, I understood that, you know, and it wasn't nobody was egregious or, you know, I still held my boundaries. If somebody canceled like two or three times, I'm like, OK, we're like we have to we have to talk about this. This doesn't work. But if um, for for those of you listening, knowing that you probably have to be flexible in ways that you were not uh, taught to be flexible um, is going to be important. And even upon returning from whatever leave you have, because your circumstances might be the same, like now, yeah. uh, I'll, I'll work nine to five and see, you know, three patients back to back, have lunch and see four patients back to back. We were talking about bre- breastfeeding, like as I'm breastfeeding that, if I'm pumping and if I'm back at the office and I'm pumping, that might not be you know, uh, a viable, or I made the decision. I have two locations not to return to to one location because my location is about an hour from my home. So I started to do math. I was like, okay, so I have to leave. I have to leave more than an hour to make sure just in case there's any traffic, I'm going to be on the road for an hour. I'll go into session then I have to pump right away or pump at some point. And then I have to see people and then have lunch and then pump again and then drive home. And it it started to like not make sense for me Mm -hmm. to drive that hour. And that was a a big decision that no, I wasn't going to return to that, to that location. And that was also an update that I I provided and let people know that I wouldn't be turning, returning physically to that location. Once again, I'm glad you brought up that point about breastfeeding. And that was my experience as well of needing to be really mindful about my schedule and when I needed to pump. Um, And that also, you know, in pregnancy and particularly breastfeeding, I was ravenous. And so I was eating constantly, just trying as many calories as I could get in my body, drinking constantly. And I think going back to that really important reminder of your body is doing something really, really incredible. And yes, your clients are important. And yes, your practice is important. And your health and well-being are of primary importance. Um, And I think one of the main points that I've taken from this is just the importance of knowing the confines about ethics and referrals and considerations and setting the tone, but primarily about flexibility, flexibility with self, flexibility with your staff, flexibility with clients and having the expectation that you really can't have an expectation. And so you're kind of rolling with it as it comes. Yeah. And then planning for whatever kind of support, whether that's financial support, you know, some people, again, are partnered up and their partner has benefits or you can live on one income. Some people don't have that. They have to plan for that. Uh, Some people may have to return back to maternity leave quicker. Uh, I've seen second time moms return quicker than, you know, um, first time moms in some situations and knowing I've also seen people return back from maternity leave as, uh, you know, mental health professionals. But like, they're like, okay, I'm going to see five people a week. And that's, you know, they're bringing in some income. Usually it's private pay. Um, they're, they're maybe they've closed their office or, you know, they've really reduced their expenses. So, you know, seeing five people will give them some income for the month so they don't feel like they have lost, you know, everything and it it helps with continuity. So I I don't know that there's any right or wrong way 
and planning your maternity leave. Um, I think a lot of people do a lot of things out of sort of like necessity in their own particular circumstances. And like I said, being in private practice, there are many benefits, but planning for maternity leave is definitely one of the ones that you will have to really consider. Um, so let's recap and help me with this kind of for our listeners, some of the important points. So we talked about the importance of providing referrals the gold standard is, is three a flexibility for clients and for ourselves. We also talked about whether or not people could be looking into something like you said, like an office manager, things like professional will, a business associate agreement, and then also the consideration about disability health insurance using resources that are available to them to try to secure those things. Um, are there other resources that you used or that you recommend for people as they're kind of working through this process? So I actually have connected with a therapist or into that were pregnant and are pregnant around the same time that I was. And we were really like each other's support people. And so I really appreciated that because I think being in the mental health profession is has a unique set of challenges. It's different than other careers. It's a, a very emotional um, and it they're all in private practice. They all had to get their practices situated. We kind of said, oh, did you get, did you hire a biller? Did you, you know, did you stop taking patients? Did you, you know, do this, do that? And so I think above and be, you know, beyond all of the things that we said, and we didn't really talk about this, but having people who are in your field and are going through what you're going through is really helpful. In addition to all of the other, you know, I'm on the what to expect when you're expecting forum every night reading about people's experiences. And I like to read about what other people do for maternity leave and, um, and you know, how they plan and the things that they do. But, you know, all the regular mommy blogs and, you know, books, what to expect when you're expecting. And now I'm reading one on sleep and, uh, you know, be, being connected in that way. But I think being connected with people in your profession because we have a unique set of circumstances. I think those are all very good points and the importance of connecting with other people that can understand it. Um, Amanda, for our listeners who want to learn more about you with the understanding you're going to be unavailable for a while, uh, how do people learn about you and get in touch with you? So probably the best resource is the Facebook group, My Private Practice Collective. Uh, we're always inviting new people to come and join us and to be you know, a part of that. You can also find my information at myprivatepracticecollective.com. We have lots of freebies and giveaways and uh, information about what we do there. And like, I will be on leave at some point, depending on what people are listening to this. But I do love to connect with people you know, about their journeys. Wonderful. Thank you again for joining us. This has been a very enlightening hour and particularly in your current situation. Thank you all the more for spending this time and speaking from your heart about what this journey has been like for you. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.